From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Wharton Moneyball, another virtual edition of Wharton Moneyball. We're coming to you via Zoom call around the country. We have three folks in the Philadelphia area and one in Central Texas. The whole crew is here. Cade Massey hosting, Audie Weiner there on the main line of Philadelphia. Eric Bradlow also mainlining Philadelphia and Shane Jensen, Center City, Philadelphia. Good morning, fellas. Morning. How, how are y'all doing? How's it going? Doing well. Haven't moved much since we last. Uh, not not very much online. movement. Not very yeah. much movement. You know, I'm in Texas and there's more movement than there used to be. States open. States, States open. open. Yeah. Why don't you tell us yeah. a little bit about what's, what Texas is doing to uh, change the, the status? Well, it, there's, there's great variation. So I was in an optometrist appointment this morning. And oh, that's it, a lot. I felt like, I, felt <laughs> like I, it, I was completely safe. I mean, just saying things were so strict and copacetic. I mean, it really, really was well done. And then I picked my wife up at the airport and she said it was a complete zoo inside and really disappointing. So I feel like it's pretty wide ranging, which I guess makes sense. And um, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. That's for dang sure. Uh, I'm curious, guys, we, we've, we've been around a few different places um, over the last week, um, and, we, and we read around the internet, of course, different places. I'm curious, what has caught your eyes in the world of COVID-19? I feel like we're, um, we're at the point where there's actual honest experimentation going on. It's not uh, design-controlled experimentation, but it's almost accidental, um, natural experimentation where states like Texas and Georgia and others and Florida are starting to change the way they function in, in considerable ways. Places like where we are and New Jersey and New York are, are every bit as, as locked down as they were. It's hard to know whether people are really all following it. I was walking through the park over the weekend and, and there were many people in it, but people were definitely observing the requirements. Um, and in, internationally, there's lots of variation. So I've been tracking a bunch of different countries, Sweden and Denmark mm-hmm. and uh, Germany. Sweden seems Italy. like the most interesting kind of yeah. case, right? Just because, A, it's very similar to its surrounding countries, kind of like it's, it, it creates a little bit more of a balanced comparison than perhaps some of these other ones. I mean, I agree. The variation across the U.S. is, to a certain extent, great. Without variation, you're not going to get much information. So that does kind of create a, a substrate for ex- experimentation. But it's very, very confounded with, you know, this, the type Other of factors tend to, <laughs> tend to open early are, are very different than the type of states that are not going to open early. Well, but there's also that, there's there, that. But just let's be clear. It, it's not the policy that's actually, you know, I don't want to leave this from a statistic, leave this whole era, if you'd like, from a statistical perspective and say, this policy did this. It's not the policy. You could have a policy, but people adhere to distancing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so w- the data we need, regardless of the policy, is what distancing and what measures. Are people wearing masks? Are people distancing properly? And of course, policy the policy can influence that, but we need social mobility data. We need mass data. We need all of the things and the guidelines. That's the data I want to actually relate to the, you know, if you like the diffusion of the disease. So I, I will, you know, I'm going to get the, the mobile tracking data is what everybody's going to be using and different outfits aggregate this. And we've talked about it some over the last few weeks. I'm, I'm downloading on a daily basis from an organization called Unicast but they're not updated. They're about a week lagged on the actual data. So I can't see what's happening like yesterday, but 
different organizations are coming up with different metrics like miles driven versus the period before COVID-19. Some uh, like the number of non-essential businesses visited. And then they're also doing when they observe multiple phones within the same area. So they're basically interactions. Now they don't know exactly what happened, but they know that they were in the same area. So we're seeing those kinds of measures and economists are dropping into their models to predict what happens next. That's gonna, it's, I, I agree entirely, because you see movement outside of policies in both directions. Mm-hmm. But we are gonna have one other, one other quick, this isn't quite data, it really isn't data that this group would be happy with. But I did hear, I think this was on 538, um, their, their politics podcast. They talked about survey data where they, so it's a big survey that those guys pay some attention to, to, and they and they ask, are you wearing a mask when you go out? And what they observed, which was interesting, was that the that the differences between self-proclaimed Democrats and self-proclaimed Republicans and independents was a lot less than you would think, because people talk about this being a very politicized behavior, and it turns out that it's all within just a few points of each other. It's like 65% plus or minus. And um, their point was, often people will say something, they'll report an attitude that they believe lines up with their political affiliation, but their behavior might actually be different. So it's again, it's another version of Eric's point, which is we need data. And we have the mobile phone tracking data. Now we need something like, you know, mask wearing data, I suppose, even though that could get pretty invasive. Well, even the tracking data is invasive. We're, we're already, you know, we're already talking about, I mean, it is already very invasive. I mean, we've, we've come to accept it's, it. it. It's anonymized. And, those data are all anonymous. I don't think there's any privacy concerns, at least not on by the time it gets to people like me. Well, you know, Asian countries are doing more than that. They're actually tracking individuals and telling them where they can go. But my concern about about Eric's emphasis on what you might call the um, the this mobility data is that there's so many higher order confounders that just seem to be so mysterious to us. So take, take Sweden, for example, and, 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 or there's a comparison maybe between Indonesia and, and its neighbor, Bangladesh, England, Indonesia is overrun. Bangladesh is nothing. They don't have differences that are fundamental. We just can't even put our hand around why they're differently. But you talked about say Sweden, Sweden has a completely open, it hasn't really closed at all. They're the same size as we are. They have had the, we meaning Pennsylvania, sorry, Cade, uh, excluding you on this one, um, um, about the same population size, about the same number of deaths, about the same number of just about everything. And yet here in Pennsylvania, we've, much, we've had much more close to a lockdown. Sweden has 10 times uh, many more deaths, we should say, and much more prevalent than some of its other Scandinavian neighbors. And nobody, and people so are pointing to maybe because it's their approach, it's probably right. But there's, there's a huge number of, of, of confounders here. And so this approach might work in the U.S. to a degree. And I've just spoke to a doctor who said that I think the strain of the virus itself could be various, sufficiently variable to make an absolute muck out of the whole thing. Because you'll see that people are that, that it, things move in such different directions and they have larger order effects than the, the modest effect you can estimate using this data. Do, do you think it's fair to say that there's a there's a pattern in our conversations where Adi tends to jump in and say, "Ah, we in this COVID nineteen conversation, we don't know. There's a confounder here. We don't know. It's it's made a muck of things." And I've I've I find myself resisting this yes. because <laughs> well I, it feels like a, it feels like the i mean i certainly do that on plenty of issues but it feels like the the luxury of the academic on the sidelines to say those kinds of things when you when you have to make a decision one way or the other so you have to you, you need to you need to have some kind of model that says something or 
a, a firm belief that you can't use models at all. And I don't think you're quite there. So I feel like you, your rhetoric is like, it, 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 it's, it's nihilistic rhetoric, but you don't actually feel nihilistically about models. That you push comes to shove, you'd use them. You're, you're asking me to, he's pushing me and he's shoving me and he's asking me. Well, you know, it's interesting. So I do think that there's a saliency, almost a primacy of common sense that has to come in. And, and, and that's really the, the issue is if the model is saying one thing and that, and then it may be in direct opposition to what I might call common sense, then I would start to wonder whether or not I would go with the model. But lacking that kind of contradiction, I'm willing to believe in the model. So if you ask yeah. me, for example, it turns out, and this is really interesting, and I actually talked to another one of our Wharton colleagues who's also in the law school, David Abrams, and he actually did a, in, he and a, a student researched all they could get on, on, on masks, on whether they prevent infection and virus. And the data on it is actually terrible, as in right. it doesn't really show anything. I mean, the potential effect could be big, but almost nothing shows up as statistically significant. Hand washing on the other end seems to work, but masks, not sure. On the other hand, here, you telling me that masks aren't working? I'm going to, I'm going to wear that mask right. and I'm going to, I'm going to do right. it regardless right. of what the scientific data suggests because common sense says that it's a good idea. So what's the, what's the Bill James quote about models and data that they, they, a good one ought to fit with your, your, your commission wisdom four, four times, four to five times, or like 80% of the time it ought to validate your beliefs and 20% surprise, something like that. Now this is beyond baseball, but there's a, there's a, there's a wisdom there. I think that models, most of the time should resonate and then hopefully they surprise every now and then. Yeah, so I was gonna to try to um, bring together Adi's comment, which I agree with and mine. I think there's one way to think about it that might unify the two. Let's just say you have an out, let's do a little bit of statistics here. Let's say you have an outcome Y. Let's imagine at the moment it's the death rate due to COVID-19. And let's say you have a policy. Let's say you have a set of policies. You could just model the outcome Y given the policy. You don't care any of the intermediaries, let's call it X, that could intervene between Y and the policy. You do the policy, you get the outcome Y. Now, as statisticians, economists, causal people, what we really want to know is, okay, the policy has an impact on X, and X has an impact on Y. But you don't actually need to model. From a scientific perspective, we're all scientists. You want to know, okay, so the policy affects distancing, the policy affects mask usage, et cetera. We want to know what those Xs are. But if from a public policy perspective, if you had, let's say, thousands of regions, zip codes, let's say, all doing different policies, you could model the outcome Y without knowing what those intermediate Xs are. You could even say, I don't even care what those intermediate Xs are. All you care about is policy has an impact on Y. So when I hear Adi talk, which I agree with, it's because Adi is a scientist and you want to know those intermediate Xs, but you don't have to. You could marginalize over them and just say, what outcomes do we get from what policies? Don't care about the middle. Except just as a counter argument, you know, most of these policies that governments are coming up with are these omnibus kind of things where it's like when they can, when you say policy, it's like 20 different specific guidelines. And a lot of those guidelines, you know, obviously are very restrictive to the economy can, you know, have quote unquote side effects to them. So, you know, if, if it's really only one or two of those 20 guidelines in a policy that actually are effective, it would be nice to be able to isolate those. Right. But when you do these omnibus things, then you've got these kind of like, you're, at, you're kind of guaranteeing these X's are no. very highly correlated. You can't actually separate sort of the partial effect, to use a statistical term, of one specific thing like masks 
because it comes in tandem with a whole bunch of other things. Oh, let's be clear, uh, Shane, I agree with your point. I was not referring to masks as part of the policy. I was referring to masks as an intermediate X that's in between a policy and an outcome. But you're bringing up a great point, which is if your policy has 20 parts to it, and you don't, and this is the classic sparse data problem, and you don't have various combinations of them, you don't know which aspect of the policy is working. I completely agree with that. Fellas, one of the things that's coming into play now that, that makes me feel like we're just missing in the conversation is, is norms. We need, we need a sociologist in here. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just a playground for sociologists right now. The, I bet the biggest factor driving whether or not you're wearing a mask is the norm, the local norm. And, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I, and I, I think Eric kind of made the point earlier that I thought was a great one that like, I mean, you look at a place like Japan or Korea, the, like, let's just take masks, for example, you know, without actually having to have a formal policy in place, they're going to have way more adherence to that particular thing, just naturally, because of cultural norms, than if the US had a very strict policy, like the US making it illegal to not wear a mask, probably you would have less mask wearing than Korea just sort of suggesting it. Uh, interesting. Right, right. Well, the, another another factor in that is um, what leadership does. And, you know, the epidemiologist, they have a they have a handbook, apparently, on how to handle public briefings and leadership during times of crisis. They have a handbook on what to do. And in that, they say the public officials need to be modeling whatever behavior you want people to do. I mean, like literally, and they have examples of people in past crises where the public officials have made a point, like very explicitly doing all the things that they want others to do because, because of norms. And we take our lead on norms from the public officials. Don't you worry a little bit about lack of trust, particularly in the beginning of all this, when the official position of our epidemiologists or the health organizations was not to wear masks? And then they turned around on that and said, yeah. no, 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 go around and wear it. They, and the, the, idea was, the idea was to protect the supply for the people who most yep. used it, but they felt they couldn't just say that. They had to say masks weren't. Well, weren't. to be fair, I think the manual says trust is the most important thing and transparency is really important. And so they're violating some of their main principles right up top. Yeah, I was also going to discuss, you know, lots of people also study it's not numeracy, but it's kind of how people interpret like base rates. Like if you tell people 60,000 people are going to die, um, people are like, wow, that's a lot of people. But I, you know, people don't say, well, 60,000 out of 325 million, that's this, that, you know, but if you tell people, you know, the odds are, if you're a healthy adult at between ages, let's call it 18 and 50 or 18 and 60, your chances are 1%, half a percent. I think a lot of it has to do with information presentation, the way it's presented. If you tell people, based on our new knowledge, the death rate has tripled, I think that's more, or their belief, or our belief, our updated belief, I think that has a greater impact than giving people absolute raw numbers. I think people can, I hate to say it, people can picture 100 people. They can picture you know, one person who's unfortunately died, a half a person, they can picture what it means for that to triple. But in some sense, a big number out of a really large number, I don't think gives people the same sense. You know, uh, so uh, David Spiegelhalter wrote a great article. He's a statistician in, over in England. And he just updated it with a, with a disclaimer in the very beginning that, that, and to make it very clear what he was saying. And I think he has the best way of describing the average risk, which is not any individuals, but it's average risk, but it doesn't yeah. age adjust. He said, take your annual chance of dying. So if you're 11, it's almost zero. If you're 75, it's a lot higher. Double it. Wow. Wow. 
That's, yeah, that's good. That's powerful. It's that's very, really no, powerful. it's not hundred percent accurate. It's accurate on the log scale yeah, or less, but, right. but it's a very, very good heuristic and it really explains things. So f- for us, 50 year old, well, not Shane, uh, 50 year old guys, you know, we kind of have a good sense of what our probability of dying in, this, in a given year right. is. And it's probably about a one in a thousand. Um, if I had to be explicit about it, changes depending on our health. It's not adjusted for that. Double it. But as you get older, it's much, much higher. Works. Well, you know, we worry a lot about nuances and, and age adjusting things on this on this show. There are times and places to just go with rough heuristics, especially when it comes to public communication and rhetoric. And that's that a brilliant like a one. Really good one. Adi, you should send around the link to that piece. We'd love to I'd love to see it and we can get it posted out um, from the Wharton Moneyball handle on, on Twitter. Um, I, another one I saw re- this past week was someone estimating two different studies estimating how how much life. COVID is taking from people when they die because some of the rhetoric has been, oh, these people are about to die anyway. And the estimate is something like 10 years. And again, that's going to be really coarse across the whole population. But I think most people are surprised by how much earlier the folks who are dying from COVID-19 are dying than they would have been expected to in the absence of COVID-19. Yeah. So let me build on Adi's and yours as well. Um, Adi's one's a great one. Actually, er, curves I saw this week also were the chances of death as a function of COVID compared to cancer, heart attacks, et cetera. I think that's also, I've seen those curves and COVID has actually passed those causes of death um, for lots of populations. So it's related to Adi's. And the analysis that you talked about, Kay, there was a very controversial analysis that someone, well, we all know by name, but someone Shane and I know as well, Don Rubin, about maybe 15, years ago, did a study on the costs of smoking to society. And he basically determined that the answer was zero. And the analysis he did was, you are right, um, smoking causes death. But on the other hand, people that die don't cause the healthcare system as much on the backside. So he did exactly that similar type of analysis you just described on shortage of shorting life, shortens healthcare costs, etc. So it was a very similar in spirit. It's a brutal analysis, and I don't want to get into the details of it, but I remember some years back, there was helmet legislation being, motorcycle helmet legislation being, being discussed. And I remember thinking that one of the arguments in favor of it, if it saves society costs, and I remember responding and thinking, motorcycle death is like the biggest savings to society, because unlike smoking, where you get sick and you're in long-term care, and it can really be expensive, when, when people who don't wear helmets in a motorcycle, they die, it's just over. <laughs> so it's a pretty brutal analysis, but, uh, but and I'm not sure it's right, but, um, and they're very hard to do accurately, but they're certainly being made. This is Wharton Moneyball, a virtual edition of Wharton Moneyball. We're coming to you via Zoom, and we're covering a little bit of COVID-19 in the front half of the show. We feel like it's only reasonable, one, it involves lots of statistics and forecasting, which is what we traffic in, but also, two, it's important background for the sports and the analytics that we are usually interested in. We're going to transition now and talk a little sports. We have three quarters of the show yet to go, fellas. As you've looked around, it feels like there's increasing life in the world of sports. Curious what's caught your eye. Well, something caught my eye, and I pose it as a question to you. So they had, we know they've been having a lot of these virtual events and they had a virtual triple crown race the other day. Um, the Kentucky, so explain, explain virtual event. Well, so this was actually, the Kentucky Derby was supposed to happen. And so what they decided to do was to take all of the horses that had won the triple crown 
and pretend as if they had run a triple crown race against each other. They had the actual announcer announce the race, and then they had a winner of the race. Here's the question that I was going to ask you. So Secretariat, many consider the greatest horse of all time, um, won the race. What is the statistical model by which, therefore, Secretariat does not win this race? Apparently, we don't know what they did, but if we were to do it, we, we could do it. We would, we're up for that. So one is your starting place. Like, how are, how are you even going to normalize these guys across the days and years that they ran in? And then where are you going to get the standard deviation? Actually, the normalization's not as hard as you would think. Secretariat ran against, I'll make this up, ran against Affirmed. Affirmed ran in 1978, then another horse ran in 1980, then another horse ran in 1982. And so you have what's called an overlapping design, which allows you, uh, an overlapping design allows you to calibrate an ELO model across eras. From that, you get a kind of power ranking for all of your horses. Essentially. I, exactly. I have a little data on Secretariat because I actually use this in my Moneyball class. So if you just, if you would like to know, Secretary won the Belmont Stakes by 31 lengths. Okay. Cool. <laughs> you want to know what the mean victory the mean at, the, at Belmont Stakes is 3.5. Yeah, right. The standard deviation is five. Yeah. It's the greatest victory possibly in all of sports <laughs> relative to what anyone else has done. All right. So real quickly, just to close this out, though, like, now give me the standard. You've got power ranks for everybody, and you're going to translate that into performance in some way, but you need variation around that. What would be a reasonable way to get that? Well, you do have the variation of those. I mean, presumably you don't have to just look at those horses, the performance of those horses in just those three races. You have their performance across a whole bunch of races. So you could have like some kind of, I mean, I would build some kind of hierarchical model where I have like within horse variation in performance, as well as between horse variation and performance, you know, and like I, allow each horse to have their own kind of mean performance and variation around that. Yep. And then, you know, some kind it, of. What's great about this is that Shane's never interested in horse racing, but now that he can build a hierarchical model. That's right. It. That's right. Pull in. <laughs> Simulated horse racing is great. Just the actual stuff. No one. Else. I think that's the way I, that's the way I feel about, that's the way I feel about reality TV. It's uh, actually interesting about this. What's actually interesting about this is because they've taken the winners, in other words, these horses in this virtual race all had won the Triple Crown. Most of these horses have probably won almost all the races they're in. So it's actually not obvious there's that much information to create within horse variation. But I agree with Shane's point. That's where it would have to come from. He wants to use their whole career. Or there'd be a real bias in the distribution exactly. of their times because you're kind of looking at their best performances most. Or you'd have to, Shane, you'd also have to, this is related to Adi's point, you'd have to not just win, use who won the race. You'd have to use their times in some meaningful way. Yeah. What, did, did y'all see this in terms of other uh, kind of make make believe sports contest this is a little less make believe did you see the po pole vault contest that went on the three of the world's best pole vaulters decided to do a backyard competition so these these world championship vaulters have their own pits to jump in and their own yards and three folks from around the world decided they would do a simultaneous way to compete so well, you might ask yourself okay how are you going to do that like what what will be the competition you can't you can't, you don't have officials there to reset the bar and everything. So they decided it would be, we're going to, we're going to set the, we're going to set the bar at, at, at three, at five meters. It was like 16 feet. And it's how many times you can clear that in a fixed period of time. So it's 30 minutes and they got a real track and field announcer. Wow. They simulcast this thing and they, and, and they end up tying the two, two of the world's best tied. They cleared this height 
35 times each in 30 minutes. I mean, they, they really worked them. They were really worked out. They were beat. Absolutely. So what that height on that height in terms of like how high that is relative to what they do in like the Olympics. Not it's, high. It's, it's not high at all. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not at all like that. Well, you could ask it this way. They each missed once. I was okay. going to ask if they missed it all. Shane, just so you can know, I know that I, I used to follow track and field and pole vaulting quite a bit. I knew it used, the record used to be somewhere around 20 feet. Um, maybe it's still somewhere in that neighborhood. Five meters is what? 16, 16 and a half feet. Okay, yeah, yeah, that that yeah. might have been the record in the Greek days with yeah. non-fiberglass poles. <laughs> and so I'm surprised. That obviously, fatigue plays a role here. Running speed, oh, yeah. who can run the fastest, just get back and do it again. But in yeah. general, no, they would never miss a five meter jump. Yeah, it's a Here's an interesting it's... trigonometry question. Like if you if you were neighbors with a, a, a pole vaulter and they had a pole vault pit in their own backyard and you didn't <laughs> want to look at it, like you hated seeing pole vaulting. How high would your fences have to be <laughs> to not be able to see them pole vaulting? It, it would have to be very high. Very interesting question. I do think um, this strategy of taking something that can get maybe not that interesting and obviously the limitations and adding a time component turns almost anything into fun. Just save the home run derby. It's a, exactly. It saved the home run derby, which is the most entertaining thing going. This is a great idea. Well, one of the amazing things is the opposite happened to save the basketball all-star game. They took time out. That's right. Yeah. They yeah. said, we're going to run it to a final score. It's just exactly. variation with the rules of the game. Actually, this, th- I actually thought where you were heading with this, uh, Cade, was the following. This is an interesting thing. Since you only have to jump five meters, which is easy for them, the way to save time and do more jumps is to not go as far back. You don't actually have to run that extra couple of feet so maybe what this says is, can they run half as far and still clear five meters? No, I'm saying sounds like a may- great way of messing up your mechanics. Oh, yeah, they got nothing else to do right now. I understand. That's what I'm saying. It could mess up their mechanics, but you don't have to take your normal full length run. Maybe you can yeah. cut it down, and that's actually what you learn. Matter of fact, I may watch this just to see in replay. I saw that they ran the event. I may just watch in replay to see did the runners start to did the pole vaulters start to go shorter distance from the bar so that mm-hmm. to save time as they as they learned how much run they needed to clear five meters. If I told you the top two guys tied at thirty five, where would you forecast the third guy came in at? Who wants to go first? What's the over under, huh? <laughs> quick, uh, I was... not, this isn't a big deal. Just quick. 32. Uh, 30, yeah, 30. I'd yeah, say 33. 20. So what do you infer if the answer is 25, which it is, what's your inference? It's harder, harder tasks than you think. I think you guys yeah. are you're waving your yeah. hands at this thing too much. I I know, I mean, I, or, or, yeah, I mean, it could be that, you know, two of those pole vaulters somehow, I mean, I, again, if I'm a pole vaulter and I'm used to going for a high height and taking my time with it, it must be a real exactly. adjustment to kind of do this time thing. And maybe, you know, the third best pole vaulter in the world just couldn't could make that adjustment. I love, I love the creativity. I think we're going to see more of this from more sports. It's a great way to you know, liven things up a little bit. Give us something. All of us have played games like this in our backyards mm-hmm. all of our lives. Everybody loves a little bit of it. Let's see more of it. All right, fellas, that's some kind of make-believe sports. We'll do some more real sports in the second half of the show. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to another virtual edition of Wharton Moneyball. We're going one hour. We'll tack on a few interviews. Going forward now, we're going to find some time, do some interviews, take advantage of people having a little bit of space for this kind of thing. We have another half hour to go here. 
going to talk sports in the age of COVID-19. We are seeing the reemergence of a few sports and chatter about the future reemergence. I'm very curious, gentlemen, what around the world of sports has caught your eye? Well, one thing that's kind of caught my eye is, is that Korean baseball is going to be broadcast on ESPN. Unfortunately, it's going to be, well, unfortunately, from our perspective on the East Coast, it's going to be broadcast live. And so they're going to be doing, uh, I think it's five games uh, a week. And, and of course, it's on, you know, it's, it's live. So it'll be like at like one in the morning and four in the morning uh, Eastern time. But it, so it what, are they thinking, what are they thinking there? So on the one hand, it's amazing and wonderful. We have some live sports. That's, a, that's yeah. a, apparently a, a high quality league, but they're showing them at these odd times. What are they expecting? Are they, are they going to replay them? At I more? assume they'll be replay along with that. I think it's just sort of, I, I think that they're just kind of doing this so that, you know, you know, fans who really need a live sports fix can I apparently wake up for that. Are I was reading a little use- bit about the, Go ahead. Are they going to use normal? What What's the production going to look and sound and feel like? Are they using U.S. announcers? Are they, yeah, they'll are be U.S. announcers. They'll be U.S. announcers. At least the first one has got uh, Carl Ravitch is yeah. announcing. I saw the first three games. He's uh, you know one of the frontline MLB announcers. So absolutely. Yeah, and I thought, are there, are there American players? There are a few American players in, in the Korean leagues, so not a lot. Most, most of the, most, any American that you, I mean, I kind of, I can read a list of a couple of players that are in the, but they're not really recognizable names. Um, the, the Japan baseball league has a lot more recognizable names. I think it's got an interesting structure though. I do want to talk about the kind of the playoff format. Cause I think it'll be interesting. So one of the things I was wondering is, you know, I've been to a bunch of AAA games in my life. I've been to a lot of, you know, uh, let's call them lower level baseball. It's interesting when you, this gets also ties to our first half hour, this idea of this overlapping design. I'm not sure by a large margin, most people are going to be able to tell that the quality level is lower because everybody's at a lower quality level. Like I've been to AAA games where you watch it and, you know, it's not like guys are making errors all over the place. It's not like guys can't throw the ball. It's not that pitchers can't throw in the low to mid nineties. They can probably do all of those things. And so I'm very interested to see if just the visual makes it seem like the game is worse. Eric, do you, I've had this conversation some with our buddy and colleague, Joe Simmons, who watches a lot of baseball because every now and then I'll get pulled into watching baseball. It's usually the college world series. That's usually because the Longhorns are in there. And and I and I like it, and I like to try to pull someone. And then the and then the hardcore baseball guys are like, yeah, I can't watch college baseball. They feel like at that level, which is significantly below AAA, that you can actually start seeing some very. Where do you see it? Like, where do you first start seeing the cracks that this actually isn't? If you were dropped in and you were given a test, uh, is this? Is this full, you know, MLB, or is this something else? Where would you look? Like, where would you see those? I just want to be clear. Is Justin Verlander there pitching against them? I mean, again, it's back to the idea that if everyone is of equal quality, and I don't mean, obviously, I don't mean they're playing like, you know, the five, the four of us would go out and play baseball. Um, It's not that obvious to me that they're probably at a high enough level where the equality of the parity might make it hard to see. I think, you know, let's just talk about this. With, with American baseball, you can start to see the quality. You need to get past the single A and minors. It, it's not until about triple A do you really notice that they're, 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 uh, Amer- they're essentially major league ready. And the difference is the field. That's what, <laughs> that's what makes a huge – triple A uh, baseball players are as good in the field as the majors. As you oh. go down, they are not as good. And, and, and in college, they're not even close to as good. And so think about a baseball game. There are very few errors. And, and 
now go back down to high school or even, and that's that's what dominates is, is the is play in the field. So where do you uh, think Adi Korean baseball is going to be compared? Like could could a Korean professional team beat a triple A team, double A team? Well, I will say that. So my my guess is that they are very good in in in, uh, in defense. That's what I would get. I would expect yeah. to see that the professional leagues in Korea to be very good in defense. And where you notice the difference is they just tend to not hit the ball as hard or throw the ball as hard. They don't have that. that and that's the, that's a bigger difference. And we probably won't notice that if we are watching the game with all Koreans and, and, and yeah, it. other than the defense, which I think, I think Audie's right. I think that would be the most noticeable thing. I, I, I think the pitching is I, I think where you'd kind of see it because again, that's one where you have a somewhat of an absolute standard. You have to hit right. a strike. You have to have to hit a zone and they've got the same rel- They don't actually have the same zone, but a relatively similar zone to professional baseball in the United States. Um, and the ability to kind of hit that zone at high frequency with, you know, very fast pitches is, I think, where you'd see the biggest difference between, you know, the, the, the Major League Baseball here and Korean baseball there. I think this is actually one of the great opportunities for analytics. Analytics, don't lie. We'll be able to see pitch speeds. We'll be able to see launch angles. We'll be able to see launch speeds. So even if our untrained eye, semi-untrained eye, can't tell the difference – I guarantee you, how long in that first game is it going to take for them to show either a side-by-side or an overlaid graph of the pitch coming in for them? And imagine it was Justin Verlander, and they'll show the ball going towards the plate and the one ball getting there, you know, whether it's half a second or whatever it is before the other one. Imagine they'll show a, here's the hypothetical Mike Trout going for this fly ball, and here's this player going for it. Actually, I think analytics may actually have a lot to say and to help separate these players. So one, do we know whether they'll have the analytics in those ballparks? We don't know for a fact. And two, will they put them in the production? If you if you were the South Korean League when you negotiated this contract, you might have put clauses in there prohibiting that kind of comparison for sure. I, one of the th- one of the elements we haven't talked about yet that's going to be big, like really important, is the no crowd thing because increasingly it looks like whatever sports we have for the balance of 2020 probably going to come without crowds. And so this, this is going to become the new normal. Mm-hmm. None of us have seen that before. We've never seen a major sporting events with no crowds. I have. Okay, this will be our first taste. Oh, Shane, you have. Yeah, two weeks ago, they did WrestleMania with no crowds. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, I... Right. I mean, okay, maybe it's was not it major? A, I mean, it's not a real, I mean, yes, we can argue about whether it's a real sporting event, but it is certainly a, a very analogous situation in that regular wrestling feeds. Uh, the crowd is tremendously important to the usual wrestling events and its absence was very tangible okay yeah Yeah, actually there's an interesting there was an interesting article today by the owner of the dolphins uh in the nfl talking about the fact that um they actually have a plan in place where they they believe they could uh put a crowd in the stands I'll, i'll tell you how many in a second that totally meet the distancing measure so there's hard rock stadium in miami uh seats 65,000. They believe they can put 15,000, just to give you an idea. I'm just telling you what this article said. I'm not saying, I'm just telling you. They believe through using various entrances, by separating people in seats, by putting various restrictions on food vendors and stuff, that they could have a crowd of 15,000. I'm just telling you what the article said. Mm. There was an article, I think it was The Atlantic, and so this isn't a scientific article. There was just a guy who decided he was going to gather and build a database of super spreader events, COVID-19 super spreader events based on media coverage. And he spent a lot of time building this thing. And he tried to kind of pull out the threads that were common across these events. And, and they were what you think, the anecdotes. It's, it's 
choir singing. It's, it's close, you know, funerals. So there's like emotional, a lot of personal interaction. But the other one is exhortation and yelling and singing. And you can't, you couldn't design a better one, really, than a, than a, than a sporting event where people are going to be yelling at their at the top of their lungs. I mean, this sounds right, like the but I mean, idea. True, true. But counter argument, I mean, the Miami Marlins could probably host games now and technically allow a crowd in. <laughs> you know, they only get about 800 people. Is that what show right. up to a Miami Marlins game? I did read that article, Cade, and uh, the point he made was that, but there doesn't seem to be any indication that none of the super spreader events were outside. Okay. So that's, okay. that is a difference. Um, yes, people do tend to, uh, to get a, a very excited at a, fo- at a football or a baseball game, but, but it is outside. And if you do with a certain distance, this is, this is and, something that we're really struggling, struggling with in, you know, in our real world with, with uh, the fall, with our classes. What are we going to be doing with that? Um, real even quickly, if Adi, yeah. before you go too far, and, and is the implication that had there been super spreader events that were outside, they would have shown up in this data set. That's mm-hmm. kind of the implication here. You need that. And I think he was implying that, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Fair enough. Um, all right, Shane, you've got this other wrinkle on the South Korea. Yeah, book. yeah. So I was reading a little bit about the South Korean League. So, okay. So, um, Major League Baseball, because they have been, over the last like decade or so, been playing around with kind of essentially the, the procedure by which teams make the playoffs. And a, a big part of that um, discussion is always centered around how much the regular season should sort of matter. You know, and I mean, this come, has come up also in discussions in the NFL. They're potentially yeah. changing the playoff format, uh, making perhaps the regular season less important because of less life. The North, let me just describe the South Korean baseball playoff system. So it's a it's it's ten team league. The top five team, and it's a completely balanced schedule. Every team plays each other the same number of times. Um, the top five of those ten teams make the playoffs. The way the playoffs work, the number one team is has a bye all the way into the finals. <laughs> what? all right the four and five team play off in the quote-unquote wild card round like a best of three series there's all kinds of other wrinkles to this by the way but best of three series the winner of that plays the third place team in a best of five, a five series yeah. and then the winner of that plays the second place team no in five series no the that plays the so i mean if you talk if, if you were designing something to give so much emphasis to the regular season this is a very extreme i think it's fascinating right it's it's a very extreme version of by it kind of giving the regular season a lot of weight in the playoffs amazing it is yeah. amazing yeah the, the only sport that i can think of that does have a similar spirit is you got i think it's a sport but you guys might disagree is professional bowling so when you watch professional bowling on television let's say there's 200 people that compete each week They each roll the same number of games. The top five make the what's called the TV telecast. And then five plays four. The winner of that plays three. The winner of that plays two. This is is the way I've been – I mean, I bowled a lot as a kid. This is the way even today professional bowling tournaments are on television. And so that's the way they're structured. So you're automatically in the finals if you were number one in the, let's call it the 36 games that they rolled uh, during the week. Exactly the same format. I want to introduce one more wrinkle because I think uh, it's kind of funny too. Just in case you thought that the fourth and fifth place team kind of were on somewhat equal standing at least, you know, because they're both in that wild card three-game series. No, the fifth place team starts with a loss in that series. (laughs) So so it's a best of three series, 
but the fourth place two. team only <laughs> has to win once, whereas the fifth place team has to win twice. This is so remarkable. We, we talk about tournament design, game design, and right. this is, it's wonderful to get this additional variation because yeah, I, I was too crazy. limited in my thinking. So real quickly, spin out the implication, just real quickly. Yeah. It, it really just puts a, a priority on the regular season. This it puts a tremendous priority on the regular season. And, and, I mean, credit to them for given the, the priority on the regular season, it is, uh, you know, great that they at least have a completely balanced schedule. So it's 144 games, and it's basically every single team plays each other 16 times. Oh, that's a lot of, that's a lot of games for a 10-team ten, ten league. Um, yeah, so no, that, it is, that's, very, that's okay. true, too. But, I mean, like, you know, if you – I think there's no – I mean, there's no way we would consider this kind of – I think tournament design in our, in American professional sports anyway, but if you were to do it, it would be, a, it, you'd have to have some more balance to the schedule. Yep. yep. Last South Korea baseball question. Do we know if there's a money ball team? Is there some team that we ought to be pulling for since we're going to be watching South Korean baseball on ESPN? I'll have to dig in into it a little Dude, bit more. Shane, try, and, need, try, and find our, try and find our money ball. Who, who the Billy Bean of Korea Yeah, is. who are the Oakland A's? We need the Oakland A's of the South Korea. Actually, the, the, what, the thing that I would like to look at, is I'm curious to know if they play the same way we do. Uh, and do they, do they have the same sort of big ball, home run, walk-oriented strikeout, or do they play the old-fashioned small ball? What are their what are the a couple, ethics? A couple other fun wrinkles I can, I'll just throw out. They, they do do the DH, um, mm-hmm. and uh, – Unlike one thing is uh, games after if they're tied after 12 innings, I think they, they stay a tie. So they do allow ties. Okay. All right. All right. Changing gears. There was some, some deadlift action. Game of Thrones intersects with deadlifting. Is that right? And in, and in fact, there's some interesting wrinkles here. Who's got the update on this? Well, so I'm not a massive Game of Thrones fan. Matter of fact, rarely watched it at all. Um, but I understand um, this guy is the mountain is out his the name. Mountain. He plays the mountain in Game of Thrones. Yeah, the mountain. And, uh, but he's actually a world. Well, he's two things. He's both a professional power lifter. So his name's Half Thor Bjornsson. Um, he set the world record in the deadlift. Just to be clear, what the deadlift is. So the weight is on the ground, and then you grab the weight and you just Pick it lift to your waist. it. You just hoist it. I mean, you have to lift your legs and you have to Stand lock. up, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he lifted 1,104.52 pounds, so 501 kilograms, which is the record. And um, it, it's... One kilogram more than the previous record. That's give, it. Give us, give us like historical context. What was it 20 years ago or something? Like, how has this evolved over time? How big a deal is it? This, I mean, it sounds amazing, 500 kilograms, but like what... Give us some context. While one of you looks it up, I don't know how to look it up. I'm not looking at I watched the video of it, and what was so striking between his lift of 501 and a half and the predecessor's lift of 500 was the ease in which he did it. He just oh, really? bent over and pulled it up as if he was just, you know, picking up a, mm-hmm. you know, a book. And the predecessor struggled to get the 500. He's got a lot more in him if he so desires. But just yeah. the immense size of this human being is just, yeah, he's, he's, I think he's six foot nine, four hundred and seventy pounds, and and but doesn't have that. This you know, he's not a he's not a broad built. He's he's looks almost like an athlete. I mean, a genuine like wide not a wide receiver, but a genuine athlete, and he is just massive. What was his brother's name in Game of Thrones? The character of his brother in Game of Thrones, Sander Clegane, the Hound. Sander Clegane, the, the Hound, Hound, the Hound. <laughs> what chance did the Hound ever have against his mean older brother? What chance? Yeah. Eric, the, the story continues though, right? They're going to, they're going to box or something. What's this? Yeah. 
So, um, <laughs> so let me just say, besides the fact that Hafthor Bjornsson is a you know actor, a deadlift weightlifter, he actually competes in a competition that has always been one of my favorites, uh, which is called the World's Strongest Man yes, Competition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, they do all kinds of different feats of strength in this. Uh, Hafthor has won it before. He won it in 2018. Um, he's competed for a number of years. The two top people now, one, uh, there's a, a Brit, his name is Eddie Hall, uh, who's also one of the world's strongest men. And they just announced today that Half Thor and Eddie are going to box each other in Las Vegas on September of 2021. And so now, but just again, to give you an idea of the size, again, Half Thor is 6'9", 470. Eddie Hall, I think, is 6'1 or 6'2, maybe in the 370, 380 range. But my question becomes if half Thor, like, I always like to ask these ridiculous questions. What weight range, like, suppose half Thor, who's not a professional boxer, but he said he's going to spend the next 18 months training only on boxing. He suppose he fought <laughs> the, the, the best flyweight of today, who's 110, 120 pounds. Who would win that? Like yeah. you'd say, obviously, if he fought a heavyweight champion, you assume he would get beaten because that person's not going to punch as hard, but you was, and even the person may weigh half as much, but you just assume it would just continue to hit him. But like a 120 pound fighter. So th- <laughs> this is a really interesting event to me. Oh, this, this reminds me of a Bill Simmons question years ago. Hypothetically, how many 10 year old boys could he fight at one time and win? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know the answer. What fear? What makes me scared about that is he's going to actually spend eighteen months training because it's a big difference between having just someone that size and that strong just enter Punching, a sport that right. they don't know how to 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 really p- to play, and then as opposed to someone who spends eighteen months because we know a lot about transference. You're very very good at one thing. You might have a lot of parallel sets of skills, also the skill to learn. But just to answer your question and my conjecture is that size and weight is the dominant form of variance and that a 110 has no chance. I don't care if that's the, world, the world's record. No chance against someone that size. It is just it is, right, it is what four about, times as large. <laughs> it's not what about, what about one right. of the great, let's take a, you know, a, one of the great middleweight champions of all time. So let's take like, let's, you know, Thomas Hearns, Marvin Hagler, Sugar Ray Leonard, they were in the 150s. Does that person have enough strength? I would, wouldn't see it, although I will say that punching, like many things of this kind, is, is technique is huge, particularly when it comes to having the ability to maintain that over the length of a match because you get tired. These are two things that are very important. And they that would was have- the trick. The guy who almost killed the mountain in Game of Thrones just was quicker, and he wore yeah. him out, and he got tired, and he really should have had him. It was one of yeah. the. It was one of the great surprises. One of the worst moments. Oh. Worst moments oh, I think in the whole series. Spoiler alert! I, I, I think you'll be with the following. Um, th- it's unlikely this is going to be a ten-round fight, right? I mean, how could yep. they possibly go ten rounds? Um, if there was a fight of a four hundred and seventy-pound man against a hundred and fifty-pound man, the hundred and fifty-pound man would just try to outlast him for the first yeah. five or six rounds and just wear him out. For That's sure, right. for sure, for sure. All right, guys, uh, one of the great all-time NFL coaches died today. Don Shula, we see in the news, was announced today at the very least. He died at the age of 90. He was, of course, the head coach of the only undefeated team in the history of the NFL, the Miami Dolphins. And this was 72, Eric, was it 72? 1972. Bob Greasy, Larry Zonka, that whole, that whole crowd. Paul Warfield, do I have that right? Jim Kick, um, yep. So what do we know about Don Shula? The first thing that struck me was 
you know, NFL great, right? What, what do we know about him as a coach? How would you, I would like to hear people talk about Don Shula as a coach versus, you know, Chuck Knoll as a coach versus Tom Landry as a coach, Bud Grant, all those great coaches from the 70s. What was it about Don Shula? Does anybody, does anybody here know? The only thing I know was that he was considered an offensive-minded coach. So he spent a lot of time, you know, uh, apparently meeting with quarterbacks, thinking about the offensive side of the ball. Notice, by the way, not that this would necessarily true, but everybody you've named so far was on the offensive side of the ball. Like, you know, they, they also, for a long time, right, right, the Dolphins, okay. yeah, every one of them. Um, also, the Dolphins even had what was called, I think they did, didn't they have the no-name defense? Matter of fact, that was what they were known for. Matter of fact, the one defensive player you probably all know, but for unfortunately because of his son, was Nick Bonaconti, whose son was paralyzed um, during a college football game. But literally, the, the famous defense of the Dolphins, I believe in 1972, was the whole thing was the no-name defense. I think they had no Hall of Famers, potentially. And the offensive side of the ball, you've just named four or five Hall of Famers. Eric, what passed for progressive offenses in 1972? I mean, when I think about Larry Zonka, there's nothing about progressive offense that comes to mind when I think about him. Yeah, I think he was the, I think um, you just compare him to his era. So who was his era? Obviously, part of his era was Vince Lombardi. You know, he overlapped significantly with Lombardi. He would have overlapped significantly early on, certainly, and, and for a while, a long time with Tom Landry. You yeah. would have thought about even the older time coaches, like, you know, they're just lots of coaches from that era that, you know, coach, I think they threw for a lot more yards. I think if you looked at the, yeah. the record for yardage uh, okay. in a game or for season, Bob Greasy would have been far ahead of his time. Okay. Did, did people talk about that when Marino comes in and he, he has such a dynamic quarterback and offense, was that kind of a continuation? That was an update of the dynamic offenses of the early seventies. I'm making that up now, but if that's if what you just said is true, it must have felt that way to those guys to get Marino in the early '80s. Well, I think the big difference, though, between you know between the early '70s and the mid '80s came this you know the period of Air Coriel, and that was I I think Don Coriel was given is given a lot more credit for I'll call it modernizing the passing game in the NFL than Don Shula yeah. is. I think Don Shula is also one of those coaches where yeah he won two Super Bowls, which is obviously fantastic. He won an NFL championship, but if you think about it, he coached. His last NFL championship, Super Bowl championship, it was 1973. He won a 72 and 73. He coached for like 25 more years and didn't win oh, one. Right, so yeah. when I think of Don Shula, you know, I was a very little kid in 1972 and three. I think of all these years where he didn't win. Like yeah. how many years, that, you know, for, again, imagine coaching for 25, 30 years. Imagine Belichick you know, well, Belichick's got so many rings, it's hard. To, he'd have to coach for 50 oh, more years. Yeah, I mean, like without, I mean, like Andy Reid would be the case of a person who coached for a long, long time without the ring and finally got one. I, I do think it's, I mean, I do agree that Tom Shula somehow was not able to put it over the top, but it is interesting. I think I read a stat that like, you know, he coached for 33 years or 33 seasons and two of them were losing seasons. Correct. Okay. Well, this is, uh, that, uh, this is the kind of thing I wanted to hear because – you know, with quarterbacks, we, we put too much, we give them too much credit for Super Bowls and we hold back too much our accolades mm -hmm. if they don't win Super Bowls. Yeah. And I just wonder to what extent the same is true of coaches. And more generally, how do we evaluate the great coaches? How, so I'm kind of curious, like when we say Don Shula was one of the great coaches, what does that mean? He, he won two Super Bowls and he coached for 25 years. 
and, and he, he and, he, and, he, and he did go to the Super Bowl with more more, more than one quarterback. So one that is correct. One, one 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 credit that like I mean Joe Gibbs does not usually come up in uh, greatest of all time conversation just because his cumulative totals aren't up with the, the rest of these guys. But I think he he won a he won a Super Bowl with three different quarterbacks. So, and so that you know, in in contrast to somebody like Bill Belichick, who we all agree is one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, but of course is the entirety of his success has been with this, essentially the same quarterback. In the last in the last thirty seconds, a, a a coach you privately hope is lauded like that, even though you think he's underrated right now. Oh, that's a great question. That's a great um, I'll current coach. Yeah, current, current coach. coach. I think um, Mike Tomlin. I think I think he's done a great job with the Steelers. Even in, I think we're going to look back. He's going to coach for thirty years and have maybe one or two losing seasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, a great yeah. pick. I can't, I don't think I can do better than that. He's yeah. awesome. Um, don't even I'm, ask me, Kate. It's be <laughs> No, we won't try you. Adi's searching I mean, himself Payton, for I, I think Sean Payton is relatively accoladed. I don't know, but oh, Sean Payton. Yeah, Sean I, I also think Sean Payton is the probably the second best coach in, in the NFL. And would have more accolades if Bill Belichick wasn't coaching. Great point. If, if John Harbaugh manages to win a Super Bowl with both Joe Flacco and oh, Lamar Jackson, then agree. That puts him up there. <laughs> yeah. Agree. All right, guys, that has been another edition of Wharton Moneyball, a virtual edition this time. We're going to keep this ball rolling. We're going to start adding some interviews. Great to see you. Great to have you listeners aboard. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we'll be back next time. Between now and then, enjoy your. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. So welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School of Business Department of Statistics. And I'm joined for a conversation with a colleague of mine, David Abrams, who is a professor at Wharton and also a professor in the law school. He's a professor of business economics and public policy. And it's great to have him on our show. He actually has a, a, a scientific background. He majored in physics and got a master's in physics, and then he switched to economics at MIT. And so he's really at that intersection of, um, of economics, uh, mathematics, statistics, law, and he's put that all together, and he's in the Wharton School, and he's re- written recently and thought a lot about COVID, uh, as I have as a statistician, and we're going to spend some time talking about various issues related to COVID-19, its planning, its policy, its uh, various scientific and statistical matters, and We'll just take it from there. So, welcome, David. Great to have you. Thanks, thanks, Adi. I've been I've been looking forward to this conversation. I've been thinking about this a bunch, and I thought it's probably probably be. I expect a fun conversation about it. Yeah, I hope it is going to be fun. I know that you're 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 quarantined uh, in the same town as I am. We both live in Winwood, Pennsylvania, um, and he's uh, uh, David sporting a Star Trek Enterprise uh, bridge there behind him, and I'm I'm actually on the on my deck of my house. And uh, you don't, don't want to see you don't want to see what's really behind me. <laughs> no, you don't. All right, so we we have you know a lot of ground to cover, um, and I just want to kind of sort of lay the groundwork for our listeners and for us to understand. Really, I just want to one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation is I really feel that there's a lot of information out there and things that we do know, but equally um, present in the community are things that we sort of know and things that we don't know at all. There are things that we claim to know accurately and other things that we don't know accurately at all. We have forecasts that are good. We have forecasts that have already been shown to be quite bad. Um, let's talk about some of the things that we've gotten right and we, what we've gotten wrong and on the uncertainty in what we're supposed to be doing next. And in fact, I think one of the things that we can, we can sort of organize everything that we talk about today 
is how do we figure out what to do going forward? And what I mean by that is our planning um, and how does that relate to sort of what we, what we think about when we have to figure out what kinds of plans there are. Um, so let's just, um, let's just start by talking a little bit about you know, the basics. You know, what are the things that really drive the policies are information about infection rates, hospitalization rates, uh, ICU rates and death rates. And let's just talk about between you and, and you and I, like how that has changed since the very beginning. So what, what is your thoughts and sort of the, the, these fundamental constants that get thrown around? Yeah, so I think this is exactly the, the conversation that is, is very worth, worth having. And I'll just say kind of just before we get into the details, just big picture, you know, as, as economists, we, you know, we think about um, how do we maximize overall welfare? And in this case, yeah. maximizing welfare, I think, is about, um, you know, preserving life as much as possible, subject to minimizing economic loss. And to, make, to me, like, everything fits within that frame. And so, I'm, you know, I think this is exactly right to kind of talk about all the pieces that go into answering that big picture question, but always keeping that in the back of our heads. So, on the yeah, you know, on this on this topic, kind of you know, infection rates, hospitalization rates, et cetera. You know, when we first started hearing about this, or at least when I first started hearing about this in this country, um, a few months back, when it was still far away in Wuhan, China, and was never right, right. touch us. You know, we heard about pretty high fatality rates, 3%, 4%, something like that. Um, and then when and, it hit Italy shortly after, the fatality rates were like 15%. Yeah, and Italy, I mean, again, right, also these really high rates. And so people, you know, and this is partly what I think grabbed people's attention and caused people to start take, taking this seriously. This is something that could not come here, especially, especially Italy. Of course, you know, part of the issue here is, well, fatality rate, well, what does that mean? Like, what's the numerator here and what's the denominator, right? So clearly, numerator is dead people, but the denominator is, um, is what? Is it infected people? Um, is it tested people? Is it right. estimates of kind of the... Right, so, so there's a whole bunch of ways we can think about this. And so let's put it in the context of a conversation you have with someone who, who wants to know how scared they should be. What would you tell them? Well, so I would say, you know, a lot depends. So certainly we know that, um, you know, the risk of the disease is very dependent on age and yeah. very dependent on comorbidities, kind of what the kind of health you're in uh, already. And that can, you know, that can change risk by orders of magnitude. It can make, you know, you a hundred times, you know, if you are in your late 80s or 90s and not in good health, you probably hundreds and thousands of times more at risk right. than someone say in their 40s or 50s mm -hmm. um, in decent health. Um, so kind of who you are clearly matters a lot, you know, and that I think is probably some of the best, you know, one of the best known correlates. Other things certainly matter as well. Clearly where you are matters a lot, how much uh, prevalence there's been, where um in that affects your infection rate. So the probability of actually getting infected is depending on where you live. New York and New Jersey, New York in particular was much more, Philadelphia a lot relative to the country, but much slower. So that of course changes. You're middle of nowhere of, uh, of Pennsylvania, you probably have very little chance of even getting exposed because there's very little data in, uh, in the community. So that of course is a factor. Go on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, you know, and this is changing, you know, this is a factor that's certainly changing 
over time and it's, you know, very relevant these days because it's leading to a lot of people saying, hey, we're not seeing much going on around us, so why are we, uh, why are we still quarantining here? We're not in New York City. Um, but, you know, so other, so obviously there, so the answer to this question about kind of what are my risk factors depends very much on who you are, where you are, um, what kind of health you were in uh, to begin with. And I think, you know, we're starting to get answers to some of these questions that are, uh, that are decent, but not, you know, but I think still not as good as, um, as we'd like it to be. It's still. Right. Gonna, so you know, so let me, let me throw out a couple of things that I've encountered. I want to get your take on it and uh, listeners can, can, can react to it as well. A couple of data points that have emerged recently, which I thought were really quite surprising. And I'm going to throw out a reference uh, to put it in context. So we know, that, of course, there's highly differential rates of um, sort of mortality, given that you have the disease. But one thing that I think is really interesting, which I've learned from reading a lot of recent literature, is there's also a very, very, very variable rate of uh, showing any symptoms at all. Right. So the 20 and under, they seem to have almost a, probably approximately a 5, maybe 10%, I think it's closer to 5% chance of being clinical at all. So this is one of the reasons why it's, it's easily spread because so many people don't have any symptoms um, or at least not symptoms that they've reported and they, and, they, and, they, and they are yet possible to spread it. So that's the first thing that I thought was really surprising. And, and that the probability of becoming clinical rises fairly rapidly um, as you get into your mid to later middle ages and then it gets even higher still. So the ch chance of showing any symptoms seems to be age dependent. Mm -hmm. and then of course, mortality is very much age dependent but so much so, so I, I got this from the, from the Philadelphia website. Um, I shared you the graph. I'll just sort of, I won't describe the graph, but anyone can go to the city of Philadelphia website. They actually reported it, um, the, not, the, not the case fatality rate, but just the population fatality rate for everyone in Philadelphia, 54 and under. And they, 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 I think they may have chosen 54 accidentally, but it's a good n number because if you're 55, you're a boomer. <laughs> and if you're 54 and under, you're, you're not. So, so a lot of people like to talk about boomer. So, okay, boomer, you're in trouble. But if you're not a boomer, here's the number they tossed out. Um, it's it's, a, it's a, an observation. Um, it's really, it's an estimate going forward, but it's an observation in the past. 0.2 out of every 10,000 residents of Philadelphia or 54 and under have died from this virus. 0.2 out of 1,000, out of 10,000. Now, just to put that in context, 0.2 out of 10,000 is what you'd have expected to have died over the same period of time for car accidents in Philadelphia. Yeah. So that puts a lot of perspective on it that I don't think the ordinary person is able to deal with. Now, of course, that's conditional on the fact that we've done a lot of, of policies to try to drive those probabilities down. But nevertheless, when I, I feel like that's not something that most people would believe if I were to tell them. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, so I, I, this is, I mean, is consistent with other stuff that I've been seeing about how, you know, how sensitive this is to age, that it really is something that afflicts older people or people with comorbidities at a much higher rate. Um, but I agree. I think it's something that probably hasn't been publicized that, that much. Now, I guess there's one concern I have about overemphasis on this, and that is, you know, it leads to an implication of people in that younger demographic thinking, oh, I've got like very little, you know, my, my risk is, is close to nil here. 
you know, let's get back to work, let's get back to social life, whatever, um, because the, the impact on me is not great. But of course, because, you know, if everyone's getting back to work and back to socializing, the impact on others who might have comorbidities or who might uh, be older is going to be more severe. So, so I, I so agree with you. Yeah, so, it's a, it's a, it's, so I'm going to say, you know, use the econ jargon. It's this externality. It's the fact that my behavior might not hurt me very much, but it might have big effects on other people. And, and certainly it might. On the other hand, and this is I'll, I'll speak more as a as a uh, I believe information wants to be free and available. Yeah, I really felt that there's been a conscientious effort to downplay the fact that internally, at least as in contrast to externally, the risks to young people are very low. The risks to mid people, mid age people, and I'm already pushing the end of that middle age time. I'm, I'm not yet a boomer, but but I'm not that far away. Um, but I'm fortunately in good health is is actually quite low and that it really doesn't start to, to get, become much more of a, a danger until you become older or you have comorbidities. And I, and I talk about this only in the sense that I feel like there's a fear and we're going to talk about some of the some kind of policy questions later. I just want to get the facts down yeah. um, that this is a very highly variable um, disease in terms of its implications. And, and, and we're, we're not biologists or, or doctors but we are well enough read to know that this is not the kind of thing that you typically have seen where you have such a stark yeah. variance, not only in, in, in morbidity, but also in clinical um, uh, probability. And meaning that, I mean, the flu, and I just talked about this as a doctor, everybody gets the flu at the same probability, get it and showing symptoms. Dying from it, of course, is, is something that is dependent on your condition and your age, even the flu. Yeah. But getting the flu, I mean, I, I, my kids are grown now, but flu, we got all the time. Flu just happens like, this doesn't seem to be that kind of illness. It kind of, the actual development of the symptoms and the severity of those symptoms, forget about morbidity, is highly age dependent. And the youngest people seem to get nothing. And this is something that I thoroughly think is, is, is known by people following it, but generally not known by the population. And I think the reason why is that people are afraid that if they, they're not going to do the right things if they, if they knew genuinely what was going on. All right. So let's put that aside. We'll get back to it because we're going to talk about basically policies, which I think is, is what we want to get to um, sooner rather than later in our conversation. Um, but, uh, but one of the things that I just want to summarize our, what, what I've sort of learned in all this is that it's very hard to look at the numbers that's been reported by every locality, every state, every country. And really get a, and, and, and compare, say, things like death rates without understanding the implications of a variety of factors. We, we touched on them, how testing rates are different everywhere. New York City was only testing the most ill people. And even Philadelphia was. That's starting to loosen up. So you can get tested now with symptoms of really any kind. And they don't have to be, obviously, COVID symptoms. They have much more availability. And so it's interestingly, we're actually seeing cases flatten out or go up when you'd actually expect them to go down. Why? Because we're digging deeper into the pool than we ever yeah. did before. So if you're tracking cases, you're not necessarily getting a sense of the, of the state of the system of the country by looking at cases. More, mortality is far more interesting and that seems to be heading down. Um, the capacity, there is of course different capacity of different countries to treat people differently. And I think that maybe Italy got genuinely overrun and I think New York may have even gotten to, I don't know, I'm not on the ground, may have actually pushed itself to the brink. Yeah. But I don't think we have here, not in, and most places in the country have never even got close to the capacity that we yeah. were worried about getting to. Yeah, but I think, but I do think that is 
it's it's a point not to like you know gloss over too quickly the fact that we haven't gotten overrun here fortunately in new york yeah may have gotten to the precipice but you know didn't have disasters like italy but you know i've had conversations with people recently saying why do you know why have we been doing this why are we still you know not leaving our homes and going back to work you know look you know the the mortality rates like people initially talked about two million americans dying like we're nowhere near that um you know was this really necessary and now we've got unemployment that's you know likely going to hit 16 18 20 percent um this seems nuts but again it's the counterfactual it's like what would have happened had we not right. done this and we don't know for sure. We can't know for sure. We can't know for sure. That's the nature counterfactual. of counterfactuals. Counterfactuals. It's imagine that the universe was rolled out without the without the steps we did. But interestingly enough, I have to say, there's been a lot of um, defense of those early numbers. The early numbers were very, very high with massive yeah. infections and lots of deaths, up to two million. And then, of course, the defense has been well, we we in, we instituted rather stringent social distancing measures and 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 semi quarantines and and uh, isolations and lockdowns and that did that bad result didn't happen but if you actually look at some of the original forecasts they were well aware that we were going to be doing some social distancing that, those were made with that in mind so i was i've been i i felt like they they're they're sort of remembering what they were saying a little bit differently to fit the data uh -huh. we, we knew we were going to lock down that wasn't secret in in the in the early march when they made I those thought, forecasts so i thought the for so the the one that I think got the most attention was this Imperial College one from, from yes. England. Um, yeah. I think that's the number that stuck in my mind. I thought I thought that was assuming no distancing. They, but they I were haven't. they were doing that. To, they, there were a variety of different ones, but but it's just like you knew there was going to be something. You had to you sh what you should have been doing yeah. was predicting what people were going to do and give yeah. you that number, right? That's, Not, that's, we that's exactly we right. Um, yeah. and, and so there was a lot of talk. And now, now, of course, that's being used to say, look, we've done a great job. And I want to talk about like what the varieties are. But let's now get to this idea here. Of, well, first thing, one thing I've, I've this has been a meme that's kind of been going around is from the very beginning. I remember in mid-March, we were always talking about flattening the curve. And we, we clearly have flattened the curve, meaning we have not overrun our ICU capacity, the whole ventilator thing. Let's reflect on that for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Forcing GE or GM to make ventilators. We don't need any more ventilators. We've got plenty of them. Turns out they, they work a lot less than we, they, than we had hoped. Yeah. If you're on a ventilator, you're, you're, it's, it's not good news. And it turned out, actually, I think that many people were put on them who probably should have been tried to stay off of them with a variety of different, this is, of course, medical care, which I don't want to get into. But the idea has to be more about how did we do with our forecasts. But now I really feel like the conversation has turned. And very much away from the way we were describing it in mid-March, and more towards eradication. Mm -hmm. And well, what do you? How do you reflect on this? It's like it's yet at the same time we're still talking about the real way to triumph over this is really get everybody, you know, enough of the population immune. So how can how am I juggling these three ideas in my head, and which one are we really moving toward? And is there any guidance here at all in terms of policy? What are we trying to accomplish? Well, okay, so here here's my take. Um, my take is we're not fully out of the woods yet. Um, we have absolutely flattened the curve. I mean, I think that's immensely important to, that we have avoided the Italy situation where hospitals were overrun. That's where you get just like tons of excess mortality. And I, I you know, again, I can't say this for sure, but strong belief that we saved, let's say at a minimum, tens of thousands um, right. of lives from from some measures that were taken. 
now. Is it hundreds of thousands or millions of lives? Don't, no idea. No, no, but that's, but the past is past. Oh, Let's no. go about the forward now. Going forward though, that's right. So could we, so one question is, if we say went back to complete opening up tomorrow, would we see a resurgence? I think, yeah, almost certainly. It's still out there in the population. Um, and we're definitely far from herd immunity. And I'd like to you know, talk a little bit about like what we know about prevalence in the population from some of the early studies that have tried to measure this. All right, um, so let's, uh, let, let's, um, let, let's go, go back. Let's come back to that in a few minutes. Yeah. I, want to, uh, I just want to sort of talk about, uh, just spend a couple minutes and then we'll take a break um, talking a little bit about um, this issue here of, well, um, how much longer do we, this idea of social distancing that let's, let's let's give it a name for it all the measures we can do what i want to do is 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 get you to articulate what are the what what are the possibilities because i feel like we've yeah. been too dichotomous about this it's either lockdown or right nothing and I, that's crazy there's there's a gradation in the middle so if you could just spend a couple seconds um outlining well where what is this continuous variable that and and one extreme we know is as we were and yeah. the other extreme would be complete lockdown, as I think they did in China. They're the yeah. most representative. Right. And even Italy was getting close to it as well. Like in China, you couldn't go out for food. They brought it to you. Yeah. Um, that's how serious it was. Um, then you have nothing. And let's talk about what the va various degrees in the middle are, because yeah. no one's talking about going the way we were February 28th. And I don't think anyone's talking about being in China. But what are the possibilities? Yeah, I think so. I think that's exactly the right question for us to be talking about and policymakers, hopefully, to be thinking seriously about. Um, so yeah, there's a total, there's a huge range of intermediate things that, that could be done. So, you know, if we think about opening up um, some businesses, maybe not ones that concentrate people uh, in, a, in a small space, like, you know, swimming pools, unfortunately, come summertime. Um, but uh, opening up businesses, allowing people to come in, but maintaining, say, a cap on how many people can be in a place at once, uh, doing things to lay out so that we can maintain distance between people, restaurants, removing tables so they can be open. They won't have the level of business that they would have had otherwise, but they will have be able to have some business. Um, uh, I think there are other things we can do also if we think about, you know, we've been thinking about um, university campuses. Can we let students back to campus come fall? Um, and I think one of the things we think about is, you know, maybe instead of a lecture hall that's packed with uh, 200 students, we have a lecture hall that's built for 200 but has 50 students in it, and we leave, you know, space between them. Maybe we have some of the biggest lectures still happen on Zoom um, when we need to do it. We still use kind of remote distancing uh, situations as much as possible. Um, that's on the social distancing front. So I think there are these intermediate steps that can be taken where we're opening things up, but we're making them a little bit safer than before. We're not, we're not shaking hands when we right. meet people. Or, I mean, one of the things, a little bit of kind of review of the literature that I've done that I found most powerful, so it's probably no surprise to anyone's, anyone who's a mom, um, washing hands. Um, like washing hands is extremely effective at reducing transmission of viral diseases. And there's a lot of great evidence for that. I mean, kind of keeping that up, making you know hand sanitizer available everywhere. Um, and other measures, I think, again, as we open up public places like um, have been taken in Asian countries, having thermometers that can measure people's temperature when you kind of go in or out of 
locations. It's another way to very quickly be able to identify if you're sick. Uh, right. So there's, so let me just sort of summarize yeah. here. There's, there's a lot of things that we can do and they all kind of vary on a continuum. So we can do, we can essentially allow nobody out of their house period. Then you can, you can, at the next level, you can allow people out to, to restock for essential services, you know, go shopping as little as possible with, with half empty or, or 90% empty stores. You can sort of increase the population densities. I mean, you, you mentioned closing the pools. You can close it completely or you can limit them to 20 people at a time and everyone stay, stays yeah. further apart. Um, I can tell you, you know, my wife is a rabbi and, and in, the, in the hot holidays we have coming up uh, is in the end of September and we're starting to wonder what we're going to do. And I don't think anybody is, thinks we're going to be at the position we're going to allow ourselves to have a giant crowd. So yeah. what are we going to do? So one, one thing that people have been talking about is, you know, one family unit per pew or every other pew, which means right. we don't have the capacity, which means you have to like add extra services in order to. So these are things that we're talking about for college classrooms, for, for uh, places of worship um, and, and also smaller groups. But I just want to recognize that the, the real question for me, the real question I think is that unanswered is we know that super lockdowns are great. They can they can eradicate this virus. I think we've seen that in China. And, I, and to a slightly lesser degree, uh, Israel has done an incredible job of, or if you're in Israel, maybe you don't think it's so incredible, of, of really lock, clamping down a population. And they have extremely low fatality rates per, on a population-wide basis. Right. Um, then you can go to, might be a little bit, uh, uh, you know, strong. We, we say New York City or Philadelphia has pretty strong measures in place. Maybe Michigan has it even stronger. Then you can kind of move to what other places are doing and little, little still closing. And now you're, you're talking about like some of the states are opening up Texas and Georgia already opening, but they're not really opening. Yeah. They're just sort of partly opening. Yeah. And then you can kind of move along sort of, and what I'm really interested in is what we would call the, you know, if you think about it, the, the coefficient, like how, how flat is it? How linear yeah. is it? How yeah. curved is it? Do you get almost all the benefit by closing uh, most and then in that middle it's all about the same it, it, like one way to think about it is washing hands it, do I have to wash hands every 10 minutes or right. is it every or, or is every or four to five, right. five times right. a day okay are they about the same they make a huge difference in your life yeah. right? you know? oh, and, a, and a small aside on that like you know the, the 22nd rule so I was trying to find okay where are the studies that tell us about the 22nd rule there's no study that tells you about the 22nd rule and, and then and I'll talk about you know masks is a huge thing so all of a sudden, everyone's wearing masks. When do I need to wear them? I, on, on our little Lower Marion uh, uh, social media sites, we have busybodies who feel if you're not walking around right. outside without a mask, you're like infecting the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that right? Is that wrong? Yeah. My, you know, my, my sister was wearing a mask in her car, bogged uh -huh. up her glasses, yeah. couldn't see, <laughs> and she bumped into the car in front of her. I mean, wait a minute. Why? And I said to her, why did you wear a mask in the car? And I'm like, well, because, and then Safety. there's really a thumping, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, so there's yeah. this, there's this, there's this sense that it's, it's not, and what I want to know is, is it all or nothing? And maybe we'll, we can talk about what are the possibilities and, and how are we going to get ourselves out of this situation? What is the possible scenarios? You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. So welcome back to Wharton Moneyball Conversations about COVID, I'm uh, talking with uh, David Abrams, who is a professor at the law school and in the, and in the business school at Wharton here at the University of Pennsylvania. And we've been talking about, just to, to remind you, we've been talking a little bit about the varieties of different strategies for, for bringing us back to life economically and socially. And that the point we were really discussing is that it's a continuum that we go from the extreme lockdown to the 
to the wide open and there's lots of things in the middle. One of the innovations that we were late to coming to in the United States, but they were very early to come to in Asia, which many people have pointed to as a reason for di various differing spreads is the concept of masks. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what your research and, uh, or your meta research, if you will, on the subject has revealed and are we getting it right? And, and, uh, and uh, what should we know about yeah. that? Yeah, so I've been in, you know, I got interested in this just like everyone else did, you know, in, in March when we'd heard these uh, pronouncements, don't get masks, save them for the healthcare workers, they're actively harmful for individuals, which seemed pretty counterintuitive. Um, and then there was kind of indication that this policy might be shifting, and I just wasn't hearing any facts, like any evidence-based uh, decision-making anywhere. And so I just decided, let me just try to look at the literature and and see what I can find. And, and just by the way, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I have a lot of experience reading studies and especially reading studies that are about cause and effect questions. And that's sort of a general, it's a general skill um, that you can take to a lot of uh, different literature. So I thought, and I've read a lot of public health and medical studies in the past. So I thought, you know, maybe this is something I can um, try to understand, at least, at least for myself, um, if nothing more. So um, so I got help from uh, uh, excellent uh, JD MBA research assistant, Zach Miller, who uh, helped me round up every study we could find. And we focused on studies with two characteristics. Um, one, randomized control trials and two ones that took place in, uh, in the real world, not in the lab. And the reason we did this, so randomized control trials, um, probably your listeners um, know the importance of that, but that's really you know, the only way you can- uh, Gold standard. Definitively tell. It's a gold standard, definitively answer a cause and effect question. You got a treatment group, you got a control group, and they differ only in that thing. That helps you avoid a lot of alternative uh, explanations. And then, um, and then the focus on real world studies was because, you know, there are a lot of really nice lab studies that look at masks, but it's a long way from going from sitting in a laboratory. And a lot of times these are just, they're not even on people's faces. They'll like shoot salt crystals or sugar, uh, into masks and see what comes through. Well, there's a long way from that to, do you actually, um, prevent spread of disease from, uh, wearing a mask? And it has to do with the people actually wear masks when they're given to them. Do they wear them properly? Um, to what extent, how much does the mask block, uh, block the virus? How much does viral load impact that? So there are a ton of things in between the lab studies and the result we care about. There are people, you know, are these reducing infection? So I focused just on um, the real world studies. And so, so what I found was kind of disappointing. Yeah. Um, so do they work I, or do they not? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know. It's great. I, I could not find one single study that um, in their original setup and their randomized trial found a statistically significant result uh, of a mask. And that's either uh, its effect on the wearer, does it help you, you know, from getting sick, or, or on other people, does it prevent other people from getting sick um, when a person around them is wearing it? Can, can, I, can, I, can I comment yeah. on this? Because it's an amazing summary. Basically, when I saw you describe this on uh, earlier, and 
and it really was shocking because basically what it says is that it's is as much as we want masks to uh, work, there isn't any randomized controlled studies or even field studies that demonstrate that it does work. I mean, it does prevent. We know that it prevents. It has it has real function in in a, uh, uh, but in a viral. Uh, uh, infection capacity in the outside world, we just don't know where this actually works. We don't know. And and again, it's possible, it's possible they do. It's possible like, yeah. they have some appreciable effect, but like there were some studies I looked at that found the opposite, that they increase the prevalence. So the and problem with the problem with an, a statistically insignificant study, most people just say that that's, well, that's no evidence, but actually it is evidence because if the size of the effect were very large, yeah. you should have been able to see it. Yeah, I mean, look, some of these actually did find relatively large effect sizes, um, and they were just really underpowered. They just didn't have enough people in the study, and also right, some right. of the diseases, like you know, were pretty low rate, and so that was a big reason. Yeah, that's why. probably it. And the but the other reason why is adherence is low. Like people in these studies were told to wear the masks and were probably paid to wear the masks. A lot of times didn't wear them, and that is actually important for kind of present circumstance because. Even if you tell people to wear masks, um, they still might not wear them or they might not wear them properly. So that's actually, I thought, kind of a, a useful so, finding. So as an, as an economist who always worries about behavior and, yeah. and you try to help or nudge people into good behaviors, knowing that, that they have trouble doing things. So, and I actually feel that our overemphasis on masks misses the point, which is that you need to wear a mask in certain situations when you're interacting with a human, maybe at a, at a store, but when you're out in the park yeah. and, e and even if there are people out in the park with you, that may not be a time to be wearing a mask. Yeah. What is your yeah. gut? On yeah. That? I, that, that's basically my gut. And that's basically what I've been doing personally. I mean, right. I, I think like there, you know, there are two questions here. Like one is like, what, what should you do individually? What I've been doing is I'm not wearing a mask when I'm outside when there's you know kind of plenty of space between me and others. I have again, even though there's not great evidence either way, but I have been wearing them when I'm inside, kind of in stores with other people. And you know, it, because you know the truth is like if you don't know, if there's not much downside, why not do it? Um, Common sense is in your is in your direction. Yeah. But now the only the only potential downside that um, has been raised about this is like now let's say instead of deciding for yourself, you're Governor Wolf and you're trying to decide the policy for the state of Pennsylvania, and he says you must wear masks. I mean, so there is this possibility of this idea, you know, called moral hazard that if you you put on your mask and you now feel invulnerable. Um, that that's going to stop all the possibility of you know, wash hands, viral you, you spread. Start, right. Forget washing hands. Let's hang out with friends. Let's get together. Um, and that could be so. You know, I'm, I'm the evidence for hand washing. That's super strong. Um, evidence on social distancing. That's that. That I don't know at all. I, I doubt there's much there. But again, my guess is it's probably stronger. So if you're going to crowd out that kind of uh, that kind of precautionary behavior because you're wearing a mask, it might not be great overall. Right. Uh, so the moral hazard, right, of uh, of 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 stop stopping doing a good behavior, which then leads to a bad behavior. Actually, the way I've sort of approached it is is and from my my sense is that masks probably do help, and I don't. It's hard to imagine they don't. Social distancing probably does help, but the real transmission happens face to face in some prolonged contact. You have to have a, a longish conversation with someone 
uh, be in a tight quarters, real, real tight quarters. I think one of the reasons why New York things spread very rapidly was the yeah. subways and the fact that it's very crowded in New York. People are right on top of each other and people were not wearing masks and they weren't washing hands. Yeah. But I, but I want, where I want to take this is, is now to the next level. Now that we know that there's lots of things that work and lots of things that probably have questionable value, and then there's the economic impact. And we all know that this is devastating the country economically. We are fortunate enough to have jobs that are continuing to pay us uh, regardless of circumstance. Many Americans are out of work. Many Americans don't know how to get their next meal and are really suffering. This is where, I, this is where, where policy comes in. And a policy question is not one that we leave to doctors who only see the, the, the disease and its consequences. We have to stand back and argue, what are we going to do? And this is where I think we're starting to get into trouble and that is becoming politicized. I don't wanna talk about the politicization of these issues. I wanna just lay out what are the possibilities and what do we actually know about them? So let me, let me start the conversation uh, talking, giving two examples. Sweden has basically not closed. Now they haven't done nothing, which is not really fair to say that they have not closed because they, did not, they don't allow um, gatherings of 50 or more. Um, and which is not quite a bit. The restaurants are still open, but, they, but they, uh, they are trying to get people to be outside and spread apart much more than they used to. Um, they haven't done nothing, but their rates of everything, and they look very much like Pennsylvania. Now they don't look like Israel, as I mentioned earlier, which is about the same size, which has 200 deaths. Sweden has two and a half thousand. Pennsylvania has, has, uh, has, has two and a half thousand approximately as well. So they could have done better if they had really locked itself down. But they're not changing. They're staying exactly where they are. We, on the other hand, here in Pennsylvania, are more or less locked down. Israel is still more or less locked down. Yep. Um, they argue that what they're doing um, would have happened anyway, even if they had done lockdown, and Pennsylvania is an example of that, and that the best way going forward is to just monitor crowds as we talked, some of the steps that we talked about before, allow restaurants to open, and even schools, and that's where I want to go to as the, the, the third direction. They've allowed elementary schools to open, and um, but not high schools and, and colleges. And these are the things that we need to be talking about going forward. Schools, colleges, and in the intermediary camps. What, what, do, we, what do we think the data is saying about those, those three items? Let's start with, uh, let's start with the fall, um, with schools. What do you think the schools should be doing? And what, based on what we know, or do we have to just wait and see? Yeah, I mean, I think um, at the moment, everyone I, everywhere I've, heard about is mostly taking a wait and see attitude. Uh, they're sort of making motions towards the fact that they're going to reopen. Um, but everyone is kind of caveating themselves and saying, well, but you know, we'll see, we're going to see what happens. I mean, so again, some of the things we talked about before, I think it's possible to try to reopen um, schools with measures taken to try to reduce density. Um, now, that's going to be, we call, it's going to be a lot. So like, again, spacing people out, you might have, you might, you might need to do either longer hours, um, offer classes on more different days in order to keep class size smaller and be willing to have some of the bigger classes do lectures remotely. Now this, this stuff applies pretty well to say universities and students who can tell what, you know, can, can tell to do this and they'll mostly listen to you. Not clear how well that translates to say an elementary school context where you probably don't have as many of these options. You probably can't increase the number of teachers so you can spread out the day. You probably um, can't you know, reduce the 
kids in classroom as much, unless you do something like saying, look, we're just going to end up having fewer hours. And so we're going to have half the kids go Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and other half of the kids are going to go Tuesday, Thursday. Um, you know, that's something that could be considered again. But again, I think it's because of this trade-off between kind of getting things back to normal and, um, and still wanting to kind of prevent a resurgence. I think it's got to be, I think it's, crucially important that it's kind of informed by what's the status of the um, of the virus and the population, which again goes back to, well, we haven't really talked about it too much, but testing, which- Right, okay, let's talk about testing, because one of the about. things that people talk about is, yeah. and I feel like this is becoming very political, is that if we don't have testing, we can't open. And I actually think that, first of all, that's a position. What's the evidence that supports that position? And what's the evidence that says that that's not necessarily true? So the obvious statement people make is that, well, if we can test everybody and we can trace, then if there's a, if there's a breakout, we can, we can stop it. So, the, uh, so I'll agree that that's probably true, but yeah. how much testing do we need for that? And I would argue that, that if, you're, if, you're, if you're looking for universal testing, A, we're not going to get it. Yeah. B, it's too much. And the reason for that is that so many cases are subclinical, which means that you, unless you're testing everyone every day, which they, no one has the capacity for that, yeah. You have to have a starting point, and it obviously seems that the obvious starting point is illness. Yeah. And if illness is something that, by the time you're noticing illness, it's already spread widely. The only what's the only that that, that well, isn't going to solve it. That, but that's, that's why it's my point. Yeah, but that's why everyone who's talking about testing is saying it goes in hand with it, uh, hand in hand with uh, tracking and tracing people. And so when you do find the person who's got the the fever. Um, then you can go back and try to figure out, okay, who has this person been in, you know, in contact with in the last, you know, whatever, 10 days yeah, or however long it might have been. That, that doesn't work. Because, but that doesn't that, work. That's what they did. I mean, that's what they did in Asia with, with SARS and H1N1. Yeah, but, Asia, but there's, but those, okay, I, I know they did it with SARS, but that's in Asia and that's, that's SARS. Look, they did it in New York. If everybody's following in, in early March or maybe February, there was this guy who came in. I remember he was part of the, the, the Westchester Jewish community. And he showed up. It was in, it was in February. He, he was sick. Yeah. And they isolated. They tracked. They isolated. They had everybody in New Rochelle, everybody in Westchester. Right. And it was pointless. The, the virus had right. so Well, that's because he had already widely. gone to bar mitzvah and a wedding. And, you know. No, but it, it turned out. Well, it turned out that there were multiple places that had come in from lots of places. Or maybe that's the, the answer is that New York was attacked by so many different fronts at the same time. Yeah it being New York. Um, but I, I just like to say that I'm not really, so because so, what I've been arguing for is not necessarily universal testing, but universal random testing. Oh, well, certainly, okay. So I'm not gonna, obviously random testing is, is super necessary. And you know, we haven't touched on like the recent studies from you know, at Stanford and USC. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. So, so let's probably. talk about those studies and what that matters. So Stanford has a study, there's, there's Denmark that has a study, um, and there's New York City that has studied. And basically what they're looking at is to try to figure out what fraction of the population has already been infected. Right. And so, so let me talk about the Stanford one, which I, which I think I know a little bit more about than the other ones, but I think there's a lot of similarities to all of them, which is they found a much higher prevalence in the population than people had believed yeah. at that point. But here's the important thing. Two, main, two key issues with these studies, particularly the Stanford one. One, they don't know particularly well um, what the false positive rate is for the test. And because the prevalence of the disease is so low, even a pretty reasonable false positive rate of, say, half a percent or so, 
could give us really uh, off results for the population prevalence. Two, selection. Who did they test? So you talked about randomly testing people exactly right. You take a random set of the population, you test them, or you at least uh, attempt to test them. Everyone's going to agree. Um, that's how you get a true uh, read of what the of what it's like population wide. What they did was they put out Facebook ads. They found friends of friends who uh, who not who a good way to be representative. That's yeah. not representative. These are going to be people yeah. who are more likely to either who think they've gotten exposed, who've been feeling a little iffy. That's who's right. going to want to respond yeah. to these and get tested for these things. Yeah. Um, and so both and then and then like the third thing was like a smell test. They they came up with uh, prevalence rates that implied if you applied it to New York. It basically implied, given the number of fatalities we saw uh, in New York, that more than the population, if you did the multiplication, like 10 million people in New York City um, were already infected. Well, yeah, we don't yeah, have yeah. 10 million people in New York. Yeah, that, that, that was a problematic study. Very difficult to make inferences from because the, even their pre prevalence of the disease in their study was around 3 or 4%, or even smaller. And so they were, and those, that means that the mistakes get leveraged enormously. There's actually some new data from Stanford um, they had, uh, the false positive rate is a very important one. So yeah. that's what we, what's called specificity, meaning that, that when you actually have been exposed and, and have had the virus, they want to detect that. Um, you want to get that almost all the time. That's the specificity. And you raised the number really needs to be at least, at least 99.5%. Um, and there was some thought that it might be lower than that. Ideally, you'd like it to be a hundred. That way yeah. you can genuinely use it as an individual to know whether or not it's safe for you. Um, but it looks like they got some new numbers that suggest it really is about 99.5%. Um, but the problem really was is that that population wasn't representative. It was just way too young. And therefore, uh, that group is way, way less likely to have mortality and serious illnesses. And they, they tried to adjust for the, for the demographics, yeah. but there's still the selection issues. I think. But the New York numbers were much better and much more believable. New York did some studies that suggested about 15 to 20% of the population has been infected. And you don't even need to have specificity that's that accurate yeah. to measure that number. And that's, accurate. you know, and that's plausible in New York. Totally plausible in New York yeah. City. The Denmark number was closer to Santa Clara's number. Um, they did, they actually did something interesting. They did it only on blood tests, on, on people who had donated blood, which of uh, course is much younger right. and healthier. But yeah. they found that among this young and healthy population, none of whom had claimed any symptoms whatsoever. That's why they gave blood. They were helping yeah. out. They were giving blood. Right. And over the dates, April 6th through April 17th, they, look, they looked at 3,000 or so blood donations made over this period at the height of the virus by the healthiest segments of the population and with a very accurate test. And they found three to 4% um, infection in that community. Yeah. And, and then they tried to make some inferences from that about uh, IFR, or, 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 which is essentially your, your fatality rate. Um, and they were producing numbers for the healthy middle of the population, 20 to 70 that's about 0.1 or le a little less than 0.1%. Mm -hmm. um, again, this just emphasizes how incredibly um, diverse, uh, the, uh, how this is such an age and health condition oriented condition. And that, 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 uh, that strategies that we use going forward have to be cognizant of that. So I want to turn our attention yeah, to- Yeah, but I, 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 I want to say one more thing. Yeah. I mean, even yeah. with that yeah. one, there's still selection and who's and who's doing the Absolutely, there's still selection. And yeah. we need, you know, you really need true randomized testing. 
That's all. Absolutely. And so this is what I'm in favor of, of genuine randomized testing, because randomized testing doesn't, does not require enormous investment in resources, because randomized testings don't have to be millions. You can get away with hundreds of thousands, or just plain thousands, to do them every day with a, with a panel. And that's an effective way to, to really track what's happening yeah. and really jump on something early by doing randomized testing. So that's what I'd like to see happen as part of a rollout. And that's achievable, unlike Two million tests in, in Pennsylvania a day—that's that, not achievable. No, but those are these are different stages. So I agree. You start with the randomized testing now, so we get a sense of kind of what's right. the population prevalence now, and we can absolutely keep doing that daily um, until it's down. But then at the point where it's down to you know very low numbers, that's when I think you switch over to what these some of these Asian countries have been doing with um, you know quickly testing and tracing. Yeah, individuals and tracing them to try to just try to prevent um, subsequent breakouts. All right, so I'm going to uh, get to, to a close with one question. This is really on my mind right now. Uh, uh, camps, in particular, and the reason why I talk about this, I'll, I'll take a quote out of uh, Purdue University's president, who announced that Purdue is opening. They're not even waiting for more data, mm -hmm. and he basically said there's there's zero mortality risk to our students. And we are going to open and um, we will take the distancings and zooms and things that in, into account as we open to protect the more vulnerable elements of our community. And of course, he's talking about elderly professors. Yeah. What about <laughs> us? Yeah. And so essentially what he's saying is that our population is protected. Our, 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 our students are protected. It's our, we have vulnerable members that we need to protect and we'll figure out a balance. So I want to think about camps because camps to me, um, are, are the exactly the most readily al available to, to open safely because they're isolated, they're young, they're, they're kids, and their staff are kids. Um, they, you don't need to have visitors. You don't need, there should be nobody over, I mean, over 60 at a camp and even very few over 50. Um, and it seems to be, and they also, they're essentially self-quarantined for the time that they're there. I'm talking about summer camps. And the cost of closing them is monumental. These so many camps, and I'm going to shout out to uh, our partner. I run a, a Wharton's Moneyball Academy over the summer. We worked for for years with uh, Julian Quincy camps and programs, and they had to close. They have shut down their doors because they can't survive this this the the pandemic. There are thousands of camps that will never open again if they aren't able to open this summer. And while we would we would pay that price if it was if it were, if it saved lives, but I can't make an argument that there's lives being saved here. And I can't see it. And with basic um, hygiene and risk averse policies, risk mitigation policies, I don't see why camps can't open. The most dangerous aspect of a summer camp, this program would be getting there. Yeah, I mean, what are your response? So, I mean, a couple of responses. So one, you know, one comes from um, having been in a law school for a dozen years. You know, there's there's the op. So this is not a statistical answer. There's there's the optics, and when uh, a small number of people get seriously ill at camps, which which will happen, given the numbers of people, uh, even at a very low rate, uh, that's going to be a bad, very bad PR. Certainly for the person who opened that camp, and maybe for them in general. Um, but kind of you know, numbers wise. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to argue with that given what we know about um, infections in young people, you know, kids, teenagers, people in their twenties who are healthy. So I think like it it would be crucial though that that is the population in the camp. And like yep. if you got a kid who wants to go though, but who's got asthma or a, mm -hmm. a counselor who does, it might be a different not a good story. idea. 
And, yeah. and one other thing is just, are they really self-contained or are they going to interact with people who come to make deliveries and, um, and do other things? So, you know, and then when they come back out of camp, if you've got a lot of, you know, if you've got kind of broad spread at that point, um, who are they interacting with then? If they're going back to grandma's house afterwards, that's... So, that's so would, you then, would you then argue almost, they're terrific, you can essentially quarantine the entire camp for the last week camp so that there's no, no deliveries in and out and that way, and then testing maybe before they leave. Everybody in the camp gets tested before they go home. Yeah. To find I, out if anyone, anyone has an active illness that we just didn't detect because it's so likely to be subclinical in that. Yeah, area. except I think like the duration, the duration could be, you know, could be a decent period of time that you'd need to wait. So I don't know. Th I guess those are the questions I'd want to think through very carefully. So I, I'm, I don't think I'm as, I love camp. I loved camp as a kid. I'm yeah. just not quite as gung-ho, I think, as you about. I am. I guess I am because I see the, I see the destruction side of it. Um, I, I'm going to be honest. I don't have a camper. <laughs> it's not like I have someone striking off the camp. Yeah. Um, but I also see the gain, the amazing, amazing value they are to the community and to the students and to the kids and stuff who benefit from them. And I hate to see them close at best yeah. and lose a summer from those for, for those. And I also think that, it's, again, parents do make a decision. If you live with grandparents or, you're, you're, or the parents are elderly, maybe they don't want to send their kids to camp that summer. But most, I mean, my kids were in, were, were in camp when I was in my mid-30s. And, uh, and, and, and the, I would, for me, it would be a, just a no-brainer um, as a parent to send, the, and given what I know about sending the kids, just, maybe I would drive them up. Tough, even if, but if you're yeah. a grandparent and, and your kid lives with you, it's tough to tell your kid, sorry, you can't go. All your yeah. friends are going, but hey, I'm older. Right. Well, this is what hard decisions are made. This is why we have to make hard decisions because of those, just those things. And we cannot be, can't argue this is one of the hardest times in the world uh, that we are in right now where these real tough decisions do need to be made. And I think they need to be made with a full understanding of all their consequences. Listen, David Abrams, it's been amazingly fun to talk with you this today. We had a long list of things. We got through surprisingly, you know, a decent number of them. I would have expected us to get to maybe two or three and have 10 more to go. We still have a good four or five more to go on our list. Yeah. So maybe we'll have to get back together and, uh, and continue the conversation. I think we, we both have, you know, interesting backgrounds. Neither of us are doctors, um, but you're in your experience as an economist in a law school who thinks about studies, about causality, about policy, and I, as a statistician who thinks about what data means and wh what, it's, what it's really telling you, um, gives you a perspective that uh, I think hopefully we've added something to the conversation. And I want to thank you for spending an hour uh, chatting me to today, and, and, uh, and we'll have to do it again. Yeah, I enjoyed it a ton, Adi, and we happy to. All right, terrific. David, thanks, and everyone, thanks for listening. This has been uh, Wharton Moneyball Special Edition of uh, an interview uh, with David Abrams of the Wharton School talking about COVID-19 policies, things related to it. Thanks for joining us today.